in your Bibles to John chapter 6. We're going to be looking at the fourth sign miracle in our study that we're calling the grave robber. And the reason is, is because in the Gospel of John, there are seven strategic miracles in the Gospel of John. John, as uh, reminds you every week, that at the end in chapter 20, John has a purpose and a reason for writing what we call, it's really the gospel of Jesus Christ according to the Apostle John. Now, in the Bible, we know two Johns, John the Baptist and the Apostle John. This is the Apostle John writing an account of his, Jesus' life, a little different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You know, there's four gospels where they kind of follow a chronological plan, but John, you could almost say the gospel of John gives kind of a theological behind-the-scenes Uh, look at the life of Christ. And in chapter, don't turn to it, but in chapter 20 of the Gospel of John, John gives a reason for why he wrote what he wrote. He says, I've written these things so that you might believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Christ, and that by believing, believing in his name, you'll have life. So he has an intent in why he's writing what he's writing. Things are not there haphazardly. They're not there just by accident. He's like, oh, i got to fill in a few more chapters, so let's throw in some miracles here. No, everything is written with an intentionality. Of course, we know the Bible says how the Holy Spirit oversees that process of those who recorded these events that uh, were later put together in what we call the Bible. But in the Gospel of John, there's seven sign miracles that are recorded. Jesus did many other things. In fact, John even acknowledges that. He said, in fact, there's more that Jesus did, and uh, the Bible, the, you know, there wouldn't be books to contain everything that Jesus did. But John strategically, for his purposes, picks these seven sign miracles to kind of build a case, seven being a number of completion, of perfection, kind of like a lawyer uh, building his case to uh, give us the, the proof that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. A lot of people came along just like they do now. You can say, I'm the Messiah, but have you raised anybody from the dead? Have you made somebody who was blind see? Have you made someone who was crippled for 38 years get up and walk? Anybody can go and say they are the Messiah, but do your actions support what you say? And so these signs and miracles were done to authenticate that Jesus was indeed who he said he was. And so this morning, we're going to look at the fourth sign, and that's in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. And if you would stand for the reading of the Word this morning, we're going to read it. It'll be on your screen. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along. I'm reading from the ESV. And if you have a different version, we'll all get to the same place. Is that true? Do we have it? On the screen? Is that all right? Good deal. You're just waiting for me. Y'all are so sharp. Don't you appreciate? I tell you, we have a great media team and they they keep me straight and I'm so blessed that they're back there. So uh, let's read the word of the Lord, okay? Verse 1, chapter 6. And this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, 
Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he, Jesus, knew himself what he would do. And Philip answered him, 200 denarii, that's a currency in that day, would not buy enough bread for each one of them to get a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were scattered. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, and nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed a prophet who has come into the world. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the encouragement it will bring to our hearts. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and Lord, the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Towards the end of this morning, we are going to, on our first Sunday, we will serve communion and partake of communion together. But this will help us kind of gear our thoughts around, as Jesus says, the latter part of chapter 6, where he talks about being the bread of life. But we want to focus upon this miracle. Notice that in your Bibles, it says that there was a feeding of 5,000. Now, the Bible says there was 5,000 men. Now, tradition in Eastern culture was only to count the men, okay? Kind of a chauvinistic world, I realize. But uh, so if you added wives and children, it's more likely that the miracle could have been anywhere from fifteen to 20,000 people. Much more. I mean, it's big enough with 5,000, right? But imagine now fifteen to 20,000 that are being fed. And so this was a miracle, a literal miracle that was witnessed by thousands of people. You can get maybe one or two people to be in on some scheme you might be doing, but I think it would be hard to get 20,000 people in on your scam, right? So again, this is, this is the ramifications of this miracle authenticating beyond just a handful of disciples. It's pretty dramatic. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, the great uh, Baptist pastor of the 19th century, says um, that and reminds us that this is the one miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels. Each Gospel account, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all has some different variations. Some record events that others don't, but this is the one, this is what, this one miracle is in all four Gospels, and I believe it's because, one of the reasons is, is because of its importance. Charles Spurgeon says uh, that the reason it's in all four Gospels is so that we won't forget how much the Lord can do with little things that are yielded to Him. Little things that are yielded to Him. The first miracle was Jesus turning water into wine. So if the first miracle revealed that nothing is too small for God, the fourth miracle kind of counterbalances that in reminding us that nothing is too big for God. You got something big? You got something big in your life? 
Well, here I'm here by the word of the Lord today, not me, but the Holy Spirit and the word of the Lord is to remind you there's nothing too big that God says, uh-oh, uh-oh, didn't plan on that. Nothing is too big for our God. Now, in verse 1 of our, of our uh, chapter 6, we see that after these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, what he's doing is he's inviting his disciples to come alongside for some rest. They had been involved in, again, when you compare other gospel accounts and timeline it out, you'll see that they were involved in a lot of different ministry activities. And so Jesus is pulling them away for rest, maybe have a little retreat. Uh, That's a good principle in life. The, The Bible teaches about a Sabbath. We don't celebrate the Sabbath per se, but there's a Sabbath principle of rest That's biblical. And so they're coming alongside for some rest. But the problem is, verse 2, as soon as they were trying to get away, what happens? The crowds see them leaving, and what are they doing? They're going after where they're going because already word is out about Jesus. Even back in chapter 3, remember Nicodemus said, no one could do the works that you're doing, the miracles that you're doing, unless they were sent from God. So the word is out. It's, you know, they got it on the Facebook, the Twitter, everybody knows what's going on, all right? And so they're fleeing, and I can just imagine these disciples saying, oh, great, we can't get away from these people. Now, as you know, if you read the Bible, you know that sometimes the disciples didn't always have a really good attitude with crowds. You remember one occasion when they were with Jesus, and there were some children that came up, came to be around Jesus, and what was the disciples' attitude? They wanted to kind of just like, get those kids out of here. You know, there's people in the church that are like that. Just let's be honest. You know, you'd just be happy if you didn't have kids in the church. Well, first of all, you don't have a church if you don't have kids, all right? Um, you know, when you read Ephesians and Colossians, Paul assumes the kids are around in the church because he addresses them and their behavior with their parents. So they're much a part of the church. But these disciples were annoyed. Get them out of here. Get them out of here. And Jesus said, no, let them do what? Let them come to me. And he used it as a teachable moment. That's what we call crises now. It's a teachable moment. Just remember that when you have a flat tire. It's a teachable moment. You're like, oh, shut up. I don't want any teachable moments, please. And they didn't always have a great attitude. But Mark, just listen, don't turn to it. But Mark, again, because there's different variations in the Gospels that help us round this out. But Mark with this same account, reminds us and tells us in chapter 6 of Mark, it says, now, same event, but Mark gives a little different perspective. Now, many saw them going and recognized them, talking about the crowd, and the crowd ran there on foot from all the towns and got ahead of them. In other words, they're beaten, they're trying, they're going to get to wherever they're going, they're going to meet them there. These disciples don't have a chance. And when he went ashore, talking about Jesus, went ashore, he saw a great crowd, And the Bible says in Mark's version, not only did he see a great crowd, but Jesus had compassion on them. Big difference. Unfortunately, the disciples haven't learned that yet. It says he had great compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And it says that he began to teach them many things. Jesus, as we saw last week, had compassion on people's needs. And if we're to be like Jesus and we don't care about people and their situation and their needs, then we're not really being much like Jesus, are we? Verse 2 in chapter 6 of John, 
speaks about that this crowd, why were they following Jesus? What does it say? It says that they were following him not because they recognized him as the Messiah, the Son of the living God, but they were following him because they saw the signs that he was performing. They weren't following him because they recognized as Messiah, but because they were intrigued or maybe because they had a need. And so that's why they were following after Jesus. They were fascinated by the miracles. But the problem here is that they lack food. They lack uh, bread. They lack the ability to feed this great crowd. Jesus could have done something. It was within his power. He could have brought bread from heaven. In fact, that's something that he was involved with in the Old Testament. Because really, Jesus is, is there in the Old Testament. He didn't just spring up, you know, on Christmas Day. He was, he was God, a very God. He preexisted, the best core Christian teaching. And he could have brought bread down from heaven, right? Wasn't that what manna was? Children of Israel in the wilderness, they lacked the ability to eat. And they got up every morning and there was this, this kind of flaky substance. Not really sure what it was, but it was edible. I don't know how you, you would go out in the yard every day and just pick stuff off the yard. I don't, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think I would go for that. But that's what they were doing. It was sent from God. And remember what would happen if they tried to collect it and put it in their Tupperware? Yeah? Put it in their Tupperware and tried to get it out and heat it up for breakfast the next day. Didn't work. It was, in fact, it rotted and had worms. And it's kind of like heating up a Krispy Kreme donut the next day. It's not quite the same, right? All right, some of you don't have that revelation. All right. But... Uh, but the only day they could collect more was for the Sabbath, okay? This is different. Jesus could have called bread down from heaven, but what did he do? He used the opportunity, as an, used the situation as an opportunity to reveal his glory and teach his disciples an important lesson. He asked Philip in verse 5, he says, Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? Where, you know, where, where are we going to buy bread for these folks to eat? And Mark, he, said, he tells them, uh, why don't you give them something to eat? They came to Jesus wanting him to do something. He's like, you do something. Why don't you take care of it? John adds in verse 6 something really important. Don't miss this. He asked them where, he asked Philip, where are you going to buy bread to feed these folks? Remember, we're talking about 20,000 folks, at least. So you think you're going to go down to Winn-Dixie and... Clear their shell. I mean, where are you going to get bread? But Jesus says in verse 6, he said this. He said this in order to, what does it say? Don't look at me. Look at your Bibles. To test him. To test him, for he already knew what he was going to do. Jesus already knew what he was going to do, but he said this to test him. Jesus was showing the disciples and Philip that, you know what? Here, here is an opportunity uh, for me to show you not only your inadequacy, but I'm going to show you my sufficiency. And that's what he does with us, isn't he? When we reach a place, whatever it is, where we feel like the bottom has dropped out, we can't, whatever it is, you fill in the blank. It's an opportunity for God to see, to show us, you know what? You've been trying to run on this and live this life in your own sufficiency, your own steam, but guess what? The dead end you hit, I'll let you hit that dead end just to show you the counterfeit money you've been raking in that's useless. The wages of sin, the earnings, the wages of sin is death. There's no life in it. 
And so we try to find that fulfillment in everything under the sun. And we think, if I can just get this, if I can just marry her, if I can just live here, if I can just have this job, if I can just have that kind of pastor, I would be so much spiritually better. Well, let me tell you something. It doesn't work that way. I don't know about the pastor part, but it doesn't work that way. Jesus Christ is the only one that can satisfy the longings of our hearts. St. Augustine said that our hearts are restless till we find rest in thee. Some of you have restless hearts today. You have restless hearts. That's the reason your marriage is sour. That's the reason you stink on the job. That's the reason you bounce around from employment to employment. That's the reason you bounce around from relationship to relationship. Is because you're looking and trying to find something in someone or something that God has said, I am the only one that can fill that gap and that hole in your life. I'll just say this, that when I went through a divorce, the Lord quickly reminded me that my answer to my life wasn't to jump back into getting married. Now, obviously, I eventually got married. The point being is, there's people that think, who are single, or single again, that if I can just get married... That'll make me whole. Two broken people do not make a whole piece. And if you are not whole in Christ, you will just perpetuate the mess to another marriage, another relationship, another job, another this, another that. Jesus is our sufficiency. And He will drive us to the bottom where we are literally, we got to look up to see down. We are, he'll drive us to the bottom to show the absolute bankruptcy of self in grace and mercy so that we see that, Jesus, you really are my sufficiency. You're all that I need. Amen? Amen. Thank you, four, four of you. That's good. Now here, this is, I, I thought, well, what, what's, what's a little, what's a phrase? I try to try to put... Uh, a statement, and, and I kept coming back with this statement I guess I grew up with as a child, and it's just this, little is much when it's in the master's hand. Little is much when it's in the master's hand. And that's what we want to look at briefly here before we take communion. Notice people, number one, people are needy. These are needy people. There's physical hunger. There's needs. There's, and the church should be involved in meeting the needs of people. But we do a provider's pantry, the church and other churches, that if we get it messed up and we think that the gospel is just about feeding and clothing, but you can feed and clothe a person, but if you do not lead them or encourage them or point them to the real uh, food, the real clothing, the real life, which is eternal life, you've only done part of your job. There was a movement in the uh, 18th and 19th century, and it's still around. It was, called, it was kind of referred to as the social gospel movement. And it basically equated that the church should just be involved in feeding the poor, helping the needy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And please do not misunderstand. The church should absolutely be involved in those things. But that's only just like this feeding that Jesus will uh, say in chapter 6, and we probably won't get to it, is that he fed them in order to point to them to the real need of their life. He fed them real bread to point to him as the bread of life. Why do we do that? We do it to meet people's needs, ultimately to give them the opportunity and to give us opportunity for to show them what their greatest need is, 
And it's Jesus Christ. People are needy. And the gospel meets needs. Also, secondly, in chapter 6, this reminds us that, and I really, I guess I'm speaking now for more of believers in the church, in, is that we are inadequate. We are inadequate in and of ourselves to meet people's needs. Just like those disciples. They were inadequate to meet the real need of this crowd. The disciples kind of had an easy solution. Mark 6 tells us, again, gives us a little insight. The disciples had maybe a reaction you might have, and maybe I should admit, maybe I might would have it. You know what their solution was? Tell them to go away and get their own food. That's essentially what they said, Mark 6, 36. You know what? There's, I know 24-hour gas stations. Open. Tell them, to, look, we can't do this. Who do they think we are? We can't do this. That was kind of their response, very human response. Problem solved. They don't have to worry about it. I mean, when Philip brought, when he brought the issue to Jesus, it would have been really interesting if Philip said, we got all these people, Jesus, and we have no money. But Jesus, I saw you turn water into wine. I saw you open the eyes of a blind man. I saw you raise a crippled man who was crippled for 38 years. Man, I've seen you do some amazing miracles, Jesus, and I know this is nothing to you. I can't wait to see what you're going to do, Jesus. Did Philip do that? No, he didn't do that. Would we have done that? Oh, come on. You wouldn't have done it either. I wouldn't have done it either. He said, Lord, we got a big problem. Houston, we got a problem here. What did he do? He looked out at the masses and the need, and he calculated without Christ. That's what we do. We look at our issues, we look at our needs, and we draw a calculation and say, there's no way. There's no way. We're dead. We're dead. This is over. This is it. This is how it ends. You ever had that thought? This is how it ends. This is what it's going to be like. No. When we calculate without Christ, Jesus called this a great mathematician because Jesus' math is so much superior than ours. They can take a handful of things and turn it into 20,000 answers to needs. I like his math better than ours. And how often do we throw up our hands and conclude that we can't do something for God or in our life because we've calculated and looked at our inadequacy and said there is no way that this need can be met, so therefore, God, you must be as limited as we are. Well, I would have thought maybe, okay, Philip struck out. He failed the the math quiz. Don't you love pop math quizzes? If you're like me, how many of you are like me, if you had an option to take anything but math in school, you would have, you opted out. If I saw a science course, you know, hey, you know, I'm going to opt out. Some of you are very smart and geniuses, and I'm, I'm thankful for you, but not me. So Andrew comes along. Andrew was the brother of Peter, and you would think that Andrew comes along, and Andrew's going to kind of, you know, Andrew's going to get it, Okay. So Andrew comes along and says this in verse 9. Look in your Bibles. He said, look, there's a little kid here. There's a boy, a lad, and he has five barley loaves and two fish. And you would think, wow, that's going to be a great opportunity to faith. But Andrew kind of blows it in the next breath when he says, but hey, what is that with so many people? Oh, my goodness. Oh, you know, you you just can hear Jesus sigh. Come on, guys. Now, 
this is, I think, helpful because when we think of Lowe's, we think of, you know, two bags of Roman meal and uh, a couple of fish fillets from Burger King. You know, that, that isn't what's going on here. I mean, it's, it's, that's bad enough, right? Uh, but this is kind of barley loaves. These are just like little cakes, almost like little pound cakes. And barley, barley was what was used by the poor, and they used it not only for their sales because it was so cheap, and they also used it to feed their animals. So barley, okay, they got barley cakes and these two fish, the, the best way, to, they were like some kind of pickled fish or dried fish, almost like sardines. In other words, it was because the barley was so dry, it was kind of like a paste to make the bread more palatable. But this is just a little lunch. And, and this is kind of Andrew's thing is saying, look, I mean, you almost want to, I don't even know, the look of the other disciples, look at him like, Really? Are you, are you serious? That's your solution? You know, the kid's lunch? Come on. But here's the point again. People are needy. We're inadequate. But Jesus is more than sufficient to take care of the need. Mark Batterson, who wrote the book called The Grave Robber, which uh, I just recommend. I, if you read it, it's not anything that we're doing, but there's some stories every once in a while in there that he uses and I thought this was interesting. He calls it the drop-in-the-bucket effect. He said, A few years ago, researchers at Carnegie Mellon University devised a study to discover why people respond to the needs of others. Participants were given an envelope with a charity request letter from Save the Children. The researchers tested two versions of a request letter. The first version featured statistics about the magnitude of the problems facing children in Africa. The second letter spotlighted the needs of one seven-year-old girl named Rokia. Now, again, this is an experiment. On average, the participants who read the statistical letter gave about $1.14. But the people who read about the little girl gave $2.38, almost twice as much. Here's the point. The smaller donations in response to the statistical letter were the result of something psychologists call the drop-in-the-bucket effect. If we feel overwhelmed by the scale of the problem, we often don't do anything about it because we don't think we can make a difference. So statistics about the massive human suffering in Africa can actually make us less charitable. Focusing on statistics can short-circuit a compassionate response by shifting people into an analytical frame of mind, and thinking analytically can hinder people's ability to act compassionately. The head gets in the way of the heart. The researchers came to the conclusion of this. The mere act of calculation reduces compassion. It reduces miracles too. Now let's go back to this fourth miracle. When the little boy offered to share his lunch, Andrew's reaction was, thanks, but no thanks. He didn't think that that little contribution could make a difference. How far will they go among so many, he said. But Andrew was overanalyzing the situation, and he almost missed the miracle because of it. Do we do that? Yes, of course we do. We overanalyze. We're overwhelmed by it. We just want to pull the covers up and pray that we wake up and it's all a bad dream. Listen, 
We are inadequate. Let's just admit that up front. But Jesus is sufficient. And that's the, that's the third thing I point you to this morning is this. And it's really what, what we want to drive home in the remainder of the time is that Jesus Christ is all sufficient to meet people's overwhelming needs. Jesus Christ is all sufficient to meet people's overwhelming needs. Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen said, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power. And by your outstretched arm, nothing, nothing is too difficult for thee. Have you ever sang that song? Nothing is too difficult for God. And so how is Jesus' all-sufficiency brought out in this chapter? Notice with me, Christ is is in control of every situation. You say, where is that? Well, look in verse 6. He said that he asked Philip that question... But it says that Jesus knew himself what he was intending to do. Jesus was not overwhelmed. He he wasn't like, oh my goodness, I wish somebody had planned better. Get that logistics team out here. Where's Judas? He should have had the spreadsheets and the plan. I mean, what's going on, guys? I depend on you. No, he knew exactly what he was going to do. He was testing. He was tweaking. He was going to give Philip and those guys a little tune-up here. Uh, of, of seeing this miracle that was going to take place. Also, it shows his sufficiency in that Christ is not limited. He's not limited by our inadequate resources. Philip did some quick math, and he said it would take 200 denarii, that's a currency in that day estimate. Of course, they didn't have that. He said it would take 200 denarii to try to do something. Now, Jesus didn't say, quick, go get the KFC buckets and take an offering quick. Anybody ever been in a service where the offering was KFC buckets, huh? Oh, y'all haven't lived. Nothing like being a four-hour church service and they're passing KFC buckets around. And boy, trust me, that gets your mind going on, you know, the colonel's recipe real quick, okay? Not a good thing. He didn't say that. He didn't say, all right, start pulling resources. Come on, let's shake them down. No, he didn't do that. Um, you know, he didn't say, now go out there. I know there's other people that got food in that crowd. He didn't say that either. Jesus was not limited by their inadequacy or even the meager little lunch. And he's not limited by your meagerness or in our inadequacy at all today. You're limited, but he's unlimited. You're limited, he's unlimited. You're limited, but he's unlimited. He is all sufficient. So why are we constantly saying, oh my, my, my. This is never going to work. Jesus, you didn't plan on this one. He already knew what he was going to do. He already knows what he's going to do in your life. He already knows. What does that tell me? That tells me that Jesus and the God he is is sovereign over all. There's nothing that catches him by surprise. There's not an there's not an atom, there's not a molecule, there's not anything running rogue in his system. He is in total, absolute control. He's never, ever once said, oops. Never once. You may have said it. I've said it, but he never did. And the kingdom of God, let me say this. The kingdom of God is not affected by Wall Street. It's not affected by your lack of interest in your 401k or if you do have a 401k. Uh, It's not affected whether we elect a Democrat or a Republican. 
the kingdom of God, God is not wringing His hands. He already knows what He's going to do. Much of it's even spelled out in the Word of God of what He's already going to do. Are we paying attention? Are we distracted? Or are we like those Pharisees in Jesus' day? Here you have the Messiah doing these miracles all around them. Remember when we looked at the crippled man that was healed? What were they bugged about? That Jesus did it on the Sabbath. What? A guy has never walked in his life and you're worried because he was healed on the Sabbath? Sometimes we are so focused on what God can and can't do and how He should work and not work that when the Spirit of God is around us and in us and working beside of us, we miss it. We miss it. Because our concept of what God can do or shouldn't do is so fixated in our minds that when He's around us in our midst, we're missing Him, just like those Pharisees. Watchman Nee, some of you know who Watchman Nee is, said this, the meeting of need, listen carefully, the meeting of need is not dependent on the supply in hand, but on the blessing of the Lord resting on the supply. Listen, the blessing is on God's supply. What does the Bible say? He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I mean, he, listen, do you think that God in any way ever just says, boy, you know that thing that so-and-so is going through? I'm just not able to do it this time. He is all-sufficient. He wants you to realize you and I are inadequate. We can do nothing without Him. We need Him. And again, He will drive us to the, our need. He will drive us down to the, to the very bottom. To If it, that's what it takes to acknowledge Him, He's all I need. And we've seen that. He is all I need. This sufficiency in Christ is also seen in the story of how Christ doesn't just barely meet needs. He abundantly supplies all that we want. He abundantly supplies. I mean, look, look at the contrast here in John 6. John draws a contrast. You've got Philip, says in verse 7, "...for everyone to receive a little." Andrew, but what are these for so many people? And then verse 11, Jesus distributing it to the people says, let them take and eat as much as they want. You see the contrast between their limitation and Jesus saying, let them have and eat as much as they want. Paul said, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And the last observation here is that Christ is sufficient not only to meet physical needs, but that isn't what this story is about. It's about meeting spiritual needs. This body is going to be gone. This body, we're going to die. The last miracle that we get the title, the grave robber, is Jesus calling Lazarus from the grave. But eventually, Lazarus died. That body gave out, and Jesus wasn't there to call him out. This body is decaying. It is, it, is, it is going the way back. But our spirit, our spirit man, man in a, in a more generic sense, but our spirit person inside of us, that's what's born again. That's what's alive. That's, what, that's what's going to live forever. 
And so Jesus is meeting these needs just so if Jesus did this, here it is. If Jesus just fed them and sent their way with a happy meal, okay, listen, he would not be the true Messiah. If he just sent them away with a nice little lunch and a track and just said, that's it. No, what was he going to do? He was going to use their hunger to drive them to see their real hunger, which was him. He would be the one that would fill that hunger. He was the bread of life. And that's where he wraps up in chapter 6, verse 35, when he says, I am the bread of life. They've just been eating bread. They, they've been eating. And, but he says, I am the bread of life. And he who comes to me will not hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. Man, you know, it's interesting. You would think that everybody would be all excited and they would shout and dance and all that. You know what they wanted to do? They wanted to make him king because they thought, wow, we've got a guy here promising us all this free stuff. Don't we kind of elect people that way? We elect the one that promises the most free stuff that doesn't cost anything. That's their reaction. They weren't responding to him because they saw in him as the promised Messiah. They were just, it, it revealed the selfish, self-centered that, oh, Jesus is going to give us free bread, free food. Yeah, we want to elect him king. In fact, if you read John 6, it says they even tried to take him by force and make him king. That wasn't what he was all about. That was what he was doing. Jesus revealed the real need is him. I told you the story about the man walking along the the shore. He was with his buddy and they're walking along and the shore had all these uh, starfish washed up on the shore. As he was walking along, he'd pick them up and throw them as far as he could back in the ocean. There was just thousands of them. And his buddy said, do you really think that's going to make any difference? And you know what he said? It does to this one. Little as much when it's in the master's hand.